0: Well, I guess uh, this morning is kind of the classic pivot point between years, from 23 to 24. It's appropriate to sing a song like that with uh, kind of the years-end sentiment. Um, I guess there's a need for a little bit of an explanation for why I have us in Isaiah yet again, yet it probably bears little explanation because once you go in and begin to Plumb the depths here and think about Jesus from the Old Testament and feel um, two dynamics happening as you do so. It's hard to, to leave him. What two dynamics do I mean? Well, there's a, there's a clear unfamiliarity with the servant songs because, practically speaking, people don't usually go to Isaiah for devotions. I guess you do you know, you can, but um, it's a a complex book to understand. Apart from the gospel links that are easy to make as a New Testament believer, really understanding the full force and weight of what was happening when Isaiah was speaking 700 BC and where that was headed, and then to find places where the Messiah is speaking about what he's already done, even though he hasn't been born yet, those kinds of interplay... That kind of interplay makes it a complex book, and so it can become unfamiliar territory to find Jesus in, and yet he's there and speaking. And so because he's speaking in there, he's, it's very familiar to us because we as sheep at the same time hear and understand Jesus' voice. We know Jesus, so when he's speaking, we recognize him. So there's unfamiliarity and familiarity bound together, and I've just been enjoying the ride as I've understood more of the background and context of Isaiah, what was happening historically, you know, temporally, and dynamics, and then also the freshness of Jesus speaking about himself from the Old Testament. It's just been exciting for me, and so I didn't want to rush out of it without finishing the songs, and we're only into song number three. Song four is where you hit Isaiah 52 going into Isaiah 53. And so I at least need to give one Sunday to Isaiah 53 where Jesus is, is the gospel on display. It's like the Romans um, of the Old Testament is Isaiah 53 in short and in a summarized fashion. It's super powerful. So I'm looking forward to doing that the next time I'm preaching. I've changed the sermon series from Hope at Christmas, because Christmas has passed, to hope from the servant songs. We all need hope, and hope is Jesus, and Jesus speaks of himself prophetically to give us that hope. Um, we're looking at Isaiah 50, if I didn't say that already, and the servant song is the third one of five, if you count Isaiah 61. After we're done, by the way, of the servant songs, we will go back to Matthew in Matthew 24, we were at a chapter break there between 23 and 24. It will be in times theology. Hopefully this will be sort of a preamble to um, going there, making connections. And we'll be in sort of the election you know cycle and all those dynamics. And so everybody will think it's the end-of-the-world dynamics anyway. And so we'll want to find out things from Matthew 24. Then after that. Hopefully, going into the spring and summer, we'll hit the last three chapters of Matthew, which is Christ going in as the Lamb of God, crucified, buried, risen. Um, All of that is what we have in front of us. That's as far as I've gotten, and then in the fall, we'll probably start a new book. That's my goal. This is a book of the Bible, though, even though we've just skimmed the cream of it, um, that Isaiah is a big prophecy book. It's large in scale and scope, but it's big in terms of its presentation of a big sovereign God, incomprehensibly big. And we're thankful for the vision of God, even as portrayed in Isaiah 6, which is the Lord Jesus, who is God presenting himself thrice holy and awesome and sovereign and on the throne. A king, Uzziah, dies, and yet the king of kings is in the temple ruling and reigning. What a message! from Isaiah 6, that is the kind of launching point for Isaiah the prophet, who is this preacher who's faithfully going to preach. His lips were cleansed. His heart is inflamed. He's called. He responds. He's going to preach. He's preaching good news that will be rejected largely, will be turned away from largely, but that's what he is in the business of doing. There's a Kind of multidimensional thing that happens with the book of Isaiah as you would read about these prophecies, and we've talked about them quite a bit. God's holiness and nature is the standard for Israel to follow in. And instead of following God, by and large, you see them on this roller coaster ride of rejecting God and turning to idols. And then passages that Isaiah brings or prophecies of hope and redemption come, both in terms of the Lord's um, grace to people who forsake the Lord and also these presentations of a savior that's necessary for heart transformation. That's the penultimate or ultimate goal of Isaiah is to speak about Israel as a remnant having a transformed heart. You have an apostate nation that's cyclically moving in and out of favor with God. That's that's begging for Babylonian judgment, Babylonian captivity for forsaking the Lord. And yet there's these windows of grace that come where Isaiah is lifting the window shade, if you will, and saying, this is Jesus. This is the singing servant. This is the one for whom you need to run to. And the remnant of Israel will. And also, the remnant represents the witness of God in the world, believing Israel is the witness of God in the world to the coastlands and all of the nations. So all of the gospel is found in Isaiah, and it's an amazing call out to the remnant to see Jesus and for that to be the light of the world for the nations to come. This is what Simeon, as we harked back to, was praying for with the coming of the son of God, the the Christ child that was put into his arms where he said Israel is the light to the nations, the Gentiles can come in. So Israel that would be inclined to trust in its ethnicity, in the oracles of God that have been entrusted, the, the witness of the word of God given to their nation, to this specific people group, trusting in religion, they need to forsake all of that kind of trust outside of trusting Christ for their salvation, the deliverer who's portrayed, as we've seen in these songs and right in the middle is Isaiah 50. We have to interpret what's going on in these chapters, in these songs, within the broader context of Isaiah to be able to really feel the full weight of what's there and to mine the gold of Christ in terms of this context as it's written. Understanding some of the history is just so important, and I'll just just touch on it for a second. You remember um, the 13th um, king who was in power in the southern, um, the southern kingdom of Israel was Hezekiah. Remember, he was a 25-year-old young young little sprite who took the throne and was given this opportunity to reign for 29 years. But as this young king, he was very godly, ripped down false gods, false idols. He directed worship to Yahweh. He was reinstating Passover, and he was doing these things. But he was a mere man, and in his uh, mortality felt the threat of Assyria. Assyria, who had taken the northern kingdom away, the kingdom had split after King Solomon. So several kings were were in these lines and the northern kingdom in 722 BC, 722 years before Christ was taken away in captivity for their apostasy, for their defection. So Hezekiah, having seen that, now 20 years later, now it's in a descending order to 700 BC, is sitting there with the siege threat of Assyria right on the border. If you remember, we learned last time in in, um, chapters we studied earlier that the Lord sent his angel of the Lord, which could be the Lord Jesus himself who wiped out 185,000 Assyrians who were encamped as a threat And Hezekiah in the southern kingdom of Judah was delivered in that moment. Hezekiah loved the Lord, but at the same time, he was mortal. He turned to his own flesh at points, and the Lord chastened him, not unlike Job, and gave him a life-threatening disease, Um, a boil, as it said in the Bible. And so it's probably representing inflammation that was going to kill him he was miraculously healed. He begged God for healing. He was healed. It was so um, dramatic that the king of Babylon sent gifts and an envoy um, to congratulate him. But that Encounter turned into an unhealthy, ungodly alliance that was made between Judah and Babylon. And that was to fortify themselves against the threat of ongoing threat of Assyria. But that alliance ultimately was a picture of hard heartedness in Israel. And they were um, enter into Isaiah where Isaiah the prophet is saying, you're going to go into Babylonian captivity in a 100 years. 586 BC is when it happened. And that would be coming um, in not Hezekiah's lifetime, but a lifetime to come. And so that threat, that doom threat is sort of overlaid as you read Isaiah. That's what's coming. And so the goal of Isaiah is not only to, to preach that warning and that judgment, but also to say there's a savior beyond that judgment. You have to see Christ as your hope. And that's where these servant songs come in. Even the idea of um, redemption is stacked together as you read the book. Where, as a reader and interpreter of Isaiah, you're supposed to scratch your head at points and go, are we talking about physical deliverance at this point where Israel will be one day delivered from Babylonian captivity? Or are we also talking about the allusion to the millennial kingdom where there's this heavenly deliverance for all believers? And the theological answer to that question is yes and yes. There's a multidimensional effect that goes on as you interpret Isaiah. And you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to see that the picture of deliverance from Babylon is a picture of the ultimate deliverance into heaven. And we as Christians await a savior. We know that people are... um, not unbelieving people are missing the Savior, and they need to see the Savior, and we need to inflame our own hearts with love for this Savior and see him beyond our hard circumstance, right? I mean, that's the Christian life. We always have hope. We always have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the priority of Isaiah, the priority of all the Bible, the priority of God in your life is to see and meet Jesus where he is, to have a transformed heart and a heart that grows to be more and more like him and near him. The problem with modern day Israel is not dissimilar to the Israelites of this day. Unbelieving Israel under a stupor under a spirit of unbelief, they've got ethnicity, they've got a, a land and seed promise and a geographical um, promise made to them from Scripture. They're, they're, they were given the law of God then and now. And yet without the Savior, without seeing the servant song singer, the one who is the Savior, you're missing it all. The greatest threat to Israel is not national threat. It's not Hamas, it's not Hezbollah as horrific as those threats truly are. The greatest threat to anyone, Israel included, is the threat to the soul where if someone will not see their sin and the judgment that would come against them if they don't repent of their sin and give their life to Christ, that's the greatest threat. The greatest need is to come to Christ, to know him intimately. And that's why I set all of this up in this context. I want to give you access to this book, to these songs that we've been learning from. Isaiah 50 is an amazing window into the mind of Jesus Christ. You want to know what Jesus is thinking, how he's feeling, how he's um, understanding his mission and ministry, how he's talking through his testimony of perseverance, even to the cross read Isaiah 50. It was here all along. It's amazingly familiar as we will see. So if you're taking notes, it's learning of Christ. You see it there to be transformed by Christ by searching the mind of Christ. That's what we have here. We have the mind of Christ. Servant song three, it's verses four through 11. And I want to just set the stage with the first three verses because, again, there's historical context for what's going on. Listen as I read verses 1, 2, and 3. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I send her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no no, no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? Behold my rebuke. By my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. What is this about? Well, this is an indictment with several pictures, several very, very potent pictures against Israel and their apostasy. Basically, and it says capital L-O-R-D is the one addressing them. This is Yahweh. This is God. This is perhaps you could say this is God the Father speaking. And he's speaking through Isaiah in judgment using divorce language as if a mother is being sent away in divorce. How strong is that? In essence, he's saying, why hasn't this happened yet? This is, this is the, these are the stakes of what you've done. You've left me. And so this is the fallout and the implication of that. Or you're busted financially. Uh, I've given you over to another creditor. It's like you, you have a debt collector that I've given you over to. It's the business that says now you have to deal with them. That's what the Lord is saying of his people Israel. You sold me out, and so now I have sold you out. But who's responsible? Look at this. Behold, for your iniquities, you were sold. And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Whose fault was this? Was it mine or was it yours? victim culture today or woke culture will pass responsibility off to circumstances to oh it's the other person's fault it's not my fault I didn't bring this upon myself you did there's all kinds of language and tactic to basically blame shift instead of understanding accountability and responsibility and the Lord is drawing their attention to themselves to say, look in the mirror and see what you have done, the mess that you have made and put yourself in. And then in verse two, it begins to build the bridge to, to, for the Lord saying, you can't blame even me for what circumstance you're in. You're looking for me to bail you out, but this is mine to judge. He says, why when I came, was there no man? Why when I called, was there no one to answer? What, what does he mean? He he knocked on the door. He's called Israel to come home, to come back, to return. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Come, let us reason together. That's the language of Isaiah, the call to repent through Isaiah. Preach Jesus and but they will reject is the prediction, is the promise, I should say. And they did reject. But there's an accusation that the Lord is answering. Is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Am I not strong enough to pull you out of this? Or I have no power to deliver? Of course God does. So why does he say that? Well, like an irresponsible enabling parent who pads a child's sin, who doesn't hold a child accountable, who constantly bails a child out of being in trouble, um, that endangers the child and the parent it endangers the adult child or adult son or daughter and the parent it's disgrace on both counts because your enablement weakens the resolve of an individual to see what they've gotten themselves into and they aren't strengthened by getting themselves out of it and a parent is weakened in their testimony and will and and just as you know will sink in despair for doing that kind of enablement and God is saying, I'm not weakened to save. I could save. I'm not short handed. I have the power to deliver. How powerful is God? Look at verse 2 Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I mean, the waves that are hitting the west coast of California, God could just stop it a second. And ultimately, He will, I think, unless it goes differently. I, whatever the Lord wills, He's in charge. It says, I make the rivers a desert. He dries up the land to the point where the wildlife dies and stinks, dies of thirst. And then the vastness of space is a window into how vast God really is. How infinite is God? Well, we can't comprehend God. He's incomprehensible. But if you look into space and begin to go into a sort of a non, I'll use the word non-light polluted area, (laughs) say that, a dark area, where you actually see the stars, and thanks, if you can kind of enter into that moment and think about how vast space is, that gives us a little bit of a taste of the attribute of God's infinite nature. He's just unending in who he is. And that's what he's saying here. You can't quantify me. I clothe the heavens with blackness. I make basically space dark and, makes, and make sackcloth their covering. That's who God is. So all of this is a prologue a precursor or preamble to what shifts in verse four. Basically, we're shifting voice voices from God the Father to God the Son, from the Lord Yahweh to his singing servant. And the Lord Jesus is the answer to this dilemma. It would be wrong for God to leave Israel um, in a facade of Protection as if they're okay. He's saying, no, you have sinned. This is your fault. You have left me. I didn't leave you. You've rejected and rebuffed my outreach to you. And you're now indicting me, either directly or indirectly, there's a blame towards me that I'm unwilling to rescue you. But the rescue isn't gonna come by me overriding your wrong, hitting the override switch and just making it all just go away. No, there has to be an encounter of justice one way or the other, either with eternal judgment or with the justice met in the Savior who absorbs our penalty of sin. That's Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the setup for a people who will say, okay, I've looked in the mirror, I see my sin and I need this Savior. When you're giving the gospel, if you don't set the stage with you're a sinner in need of grace... At some level, if you have ignored that part of your gospel presentation, either in lifestyle evangelism, conversations, books that you read, I don't say you have to slam, body slam people in one sit down, but you need at some point to talk about sin and talk about violating God's holiness so that the need is created in someone's heart for them to say, I need a savior. I can't save myself. I need to hear and listen to this singing servant. Who loves me in spite of me. That's Jesus. And that's Jesus' song here in our section. It begins in verse 4. What we're doing here, if you're taking notes, is again, we're learning of Christ to be transformed by Christ, by searching the mind of Christ. This is the third servant song. And what we're doing is we are basically entering into. The Lord Jesus, his personal testimony. This is his personal testimony. And it begins with verse four. Let me read verses four to get us our first point. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Just kind of drift into verse five a little bit. The Lord God has opened my ear. Let's stop there. This is Jesus' personal testimony, specifically kind of sub-point one, how he speaks and listens. If you know of Jesus and you've been following in the Gospel of Matthew and perhaps other studies in the Gospels, even reading the New Testament letters about Jesus and the summary of his life, you understand that what Jesus said defines who he was and is a large part of his ministry. I was uh, put in touch with a book that I've started reading about how Jesus was unhurried, and it's a picture of it's an attribute of love being unhurried because you pay attention. You focus on people. You care. This is the life and ministry of Jesus. He was always willing to speak a word of encouragement. It's what we should be to people, where we speak a word of encouragement. You can change somebody's state of mind, and the Bible is meant to do so by speaking a timely, helpful, encouraging word, a promise. Giving somebody the scripture as a promise, God will never leave you or forsake you. He's with you right now. He, he forgave you of your sins. He understood your temptations when you, were, when you succumbed to them. And He'll pick you up and meet you where you are. I mean, those kinds of words are the help that Jesus was giving all around. He would heal someone and then say, Go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven you. How did he come to speak in this way? It says, he was given the tongue of those who, are, who were taught. The Lord was built up even by the Father and how he would speak. And you might say, well, Jesus is perfect. He's impeccable. He couldn't sin. And so, of course, he spoke perfectly. Who are we to try to follow in that? But Jesus, though fully God, is and was at the incarnation fully human, so he was a learner, and he learned to speak in the way that he spoke. Luke 2.52, he increased in wisdom and stature in favor of God and man. So from his bar mitzvah on, was being, he was being trained in Bible study. He had great, vast access to the Word of God, and as he had access, he was able to use it both to ward off temptation in his own life, external temptation, appealing to the Word of God, it is written, it is written, but also appealing to the word of God and wisdom to ward off false teachers, Pharisees, and then also to correct and bring things into proper perspective. This is the word ministry of Jesus. Luke 4.22 is a great commentary of this. And all spoke well of him and marveled. Listen to this. Marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? How can he speak this way? You know the phrase, never before had anyone spoken like Jesus did. Who was Jesus? Well, he was a taught, he was perfect, but he was taught and led by the Holy Spirit in the word of God. This is the ministry that we perpetuate. Proverbs sixteen twenty four: gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. He was trained in this. He had integrity in this training. And why did he do it? He was selfless in his word ministry. It says that I may, verse 4, know how to sustain with a word. He sustained people. He held people up by what he said. The weary. And not only did he speak, but he also listened And I love this language, morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear. Who is he talking about? Jesus is talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the Father in his life, and the Holy Spirit waking him up. Jesus, as a full human, ate, slept, woke up, and when he woke up, like you and I, he made decisions, and he made the decision to listen to God and be awakened by God, as God, but Also, as part of the Trinity, he was in communion with his Father who would lead him and guide him, and he would listen. And it says, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. He was willing to listen, willing to respond. And he had an opened ear by God. And I would dare say, as an application, he was a good listener, slow to speak, quick to listen, never angry. James 1 calls us never to be angry, but to listen, to hear, to listen with your heart. This is Jesus, Proverbs 18, 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame. We're to be good listeners. The integrity of this is uh, the mission of Jesus was to care about others. And I just want to say the old adage, nobody will care to hear how much you speak or teach until they know how much you care. People want to know you have a heart behind what you're doing. All of this is tested through trials. If you see verse 5, that's the next part of Jesus' testimony. The first part is that he speaks and listens How he does that as part of his testimony. And secondly, how he heeds and suffers. Heeds meaning how he obeys and suffers. Look at verse 5. This is what we're familiar with. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. He was obedient. He didn't fall off the path. He didn't move away from God's plan. I mean, we know he... hit hit the deck in Gethsemane and cried out to the Lord, but he was persevering. He was strengthened by the Holy Spirit, strengthened by even an angel as he prayed in anticipation of going to the cross and in, in anticipation of having to absorb your sin and my sin. He was, he fell apart, but he never rebelled. He never became arrogant with all that he was learning and all he knew and all he was able to do and say, I turn not backward. And then verse six, here's the trial. So not only did he obey, but when he was when he was shamed, he persevered. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard or the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. When did this happen? This happened. When Jesus was taken captive by the Roman guard, the Roman guard was mocking him as a fraudulent king. They ripped his back to shreds. He said he gave his back willingly. Think of it being ripped to shreds by whipping, by flagellization. He was um, literally just wounded by his stripes. We are healed, Isaiah 53 says. Just ripped to shreds. They put the robe on his back. And then they ripped it off. They put the crown of thorns on his head. They beat it down on his head. He willingly gave his face. For his beard to be ripped out. And he was disgraced. Through this process. Shamed. Mocked. Cursed. And he was spat upon. So. This is important because we need to see that he had the integrity to face these kinds of tests in a way that vindicated his word ministry, his ministry to the weary. He was someone who could push through tremendous tests and trials. He, as C.S. Lewis put it, he was in the context of being tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. He was a man whose tests um, were pushed to the ultimate Limits. And so he's that sympathetic. You say, well, he never had sin, so he never had the temptation from the inside. We get that. But the temptation came in full force from the outside because he never quit in the process of being tempted and tried. So the pressure cooker was on full tilt, or the weights on either side of the bar were, you know, 500 pounds on each side, and he was still pressing through because he never stopped. He never forsook the moment. And so he pressed through. Levels of intensity in being tried or tested that we don't even understand. And that's how sympathetic he is to you and me, to meet you where you are and say, let me pick you up and get you back on the path. Hebrews 5, 7 through 11, in the days of his flesh, this is speaking of Gethsemane. In retrospect, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence, Although he was a son, listen to this phrase, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, meaning he was completely vindicated and validated, he passed the test. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This is the Lord Jesus. This is the one that gives his testimony that this is true. You'll be hated in the same way because you share the same convictions as this sympathetic shepherd, by the way. Don't be surprised at the trials that come upon you. But how do you make it through? How did Jesus make it through? Look at verse 7. This is not only, this is point 3, how he speaks and listens. Not only how he heeds and suffers. But thirdly, how he hopes and holds fast. How does he do that? Jesus hoped and held fast because he knew God was with him. You say, well, Jesus is God. Yes, but he was the perfect model as God and man, as the ultimate example of what it looks like to be in the Holy Spirit and to recognize that God is with you. He, he is that example of what it looks like to practice the presence of God. It's amazing. Yeah, it's I, just referencing this book I'm starting. It. It says that hurry is the ultimate death knell to um, prayer. And it's one of the the wildest temptations in our age. The spirit of our age is to be busy. People laud busyness as um, sort of a compliment to your success rather than being less busy so that you can enjoy life and see what's happening around you and actually pray about things and care and love people. It's kind of an interesting principle to think about, and Jesus is the model of that. He persevered through trial methodically in a way that was um, in complete reliance upon the Lord, his God, as he persevered through tremendous trials. So that's, that's what he's talking about here. He said, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Even though he was disgraced humanly, he's saying, I have not been disgraced, therefore I've set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, this is where Isaiah is kind of working in reverse here, because you see that he's already, Jesus is already talking about the fact that he was struck, he gave his back to being beaten He gave his face to being ripped at and spat upon. He's already experienced that. But then here's the reference to him setting his face like Flint. And that is what he applies in the New Testament um, gospel narrative of going into Jerusalem to be be crucified. So you say, well, what does that mean? Why, Why does it show it this way? Why did Jesus sing of this this way? Well, it's just a validate how courageous Jesus really is. He knew exactly what he was going into. He knew he was going to be beaten. He knew he was going to be scourged. He knew he was going to be whipped. He knew he was going to be mocked. He knew he was going to be, um, have his beard ripped out. He knew, he knew, he knew. And yet at a certain point, he made a very deliberate decision based on the fact that God is with him and this is God's mission and he's acting within the cues of God's leading to go there. He did that with full knowledge and he set his face like flint. What does that mean? It means he set his jaw, literally. It's like a jaw muscle just where you're just going, okay, I'm biting down. I'm going. And nothing's going to stop me. I know what I'm getting into. I mean, Jesus is speaking 700 years before this is going to happen as if it's already happened because he's outside of time and space. He can see it happening. And then when Jesus was localized and physically here, he, he made a deliberate decision to go. On either side of the context of that decision is uh, where the disciples were coming to Jesus saying other people are casting out demons and they don't accept us. They don't accept me. They're not part of our club. And Jesus says, let it go. It's for the Lord anyway. And then on the other side of that, he says, we're going into Samaria. And so set up shop for us, you know, set up some hospitality. And the hospitality was rejected based on ethnic- the ethnicity of the Jews versus the Samaritans. And the Samaritans said, we don't want you. And so, and so John I think it was James and John, the brothers, said, Hey, Jesus, can we call down fire and just, you know, smart bomb this area? Would that be okay? Because they've disrespected you. He's like, no, no. He rebuked James and John for that. And he had set his face like Flint to go into Jerusalem. He didn't care. I'm going. I'm going. And that kind of courage comes from one place. And that's where you know without a shadow of a doubt that God is with you. That's when you're strong and courageous, Joshua 1.9. Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know that. He will never leave you or forsake you. You are one with Christ. Christ in you, the hope and glory. You have Christ. Christ has you and you go. That's what Jesus is modeling here. He's so strong in this. Look at at the language here. He says, therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Verse eight, he who vindicates me is near. Now he begins to give these rhetorical bold statements. Now these are bold. And this is the boldness of Christ and it's what we can have in our own life. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. These statements are statements of courage, statements of strength. There's compassion for lost people, but there is boldness to say, I'm going into the burning building of this mission, of this crisis, of this challenge. I'm going to face it, but I'm not facing it alone. And once I understand that nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, nothing can dismantle my faith then who will contend with me? Look at that. The Lord God helps me. Who will, verse 9, declare me guilty? Nobody can. You can say it, but it doesn't matter. I don't mean to in any way disrespect Scripture with a kind of novel Phrase in sports, but it's the idea of a a victorious team that's won a celebration. I mean, you've won the championship and you're just sort of saying, This is my house. No, they didn't beat me. You know, we won. We are the victorious ones. There's no disgrace here. We find that when we give ourselves fully to the Lord's care. It's incredible. Verse 10 even is another one of those statements. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? This is a bridge to the last section of this servant song, by the way. And it's where Jesus is bringing things to an altar call. The first three verses are, this is how sinful you are and you're responsible. That's the message of verses one through three. The message message is, The message of this second section of verses 4 through 10 is Jesus saying, this is who I am. This is the mind of Christ. This is the servant who is the Savior, who can solve your sin dilemma, if you will, but follow me. This is who I am. Join the team. And then verse 10 is the invitation. Look at this. This is Jesus' public charge. He gave a personal testimony. Now it's his public charge, his sympathetic invitation. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Right then and there, you have an amazing verse. Don't miss this. Talking about God the Father, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord, and the voice of his servant and the Messiah, Jesus, God the Son. Will you come to this God who you've offended? Will you come through the Son? Will you hear the voice of his servant? Jesus is talking about himself. Will you listen to me? Now, who is he reaching out to? Look who he's reaching out to. He says, Let him who walks in darkness, not the religious muckety muck, the, the, whether you're religious or not, the one who will admit their sin, who walks in darkness and has no light. Jesus didn't come to the healthy, he came to the sick someone who will admit that they are sick, who has no light, that person, let that person trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's salvation. Trust God. Trust Jesus. Don't rely on yourself. Rely on the Lord. His death, burial, resurrection, his sacrifice for your sin, I just compl- I'm just, giving myself in complete reliance on the Lord. That's faith. That's the definition of faith. Faith is not a saving work. It is a... It is the work of divesting yourself. (laughs) You're basically saying, I can't work. I can't save myself. I trust in Christ, which is a complete reliance on him. It's him lifting you up because you have opened yourself up to be lifted. This is the invitation. This is the charge. Do you fear Yahweh? Do you fear... Retribution, do you fear the repercussions of your sin? And then will you listen to the voice of the servant? Will you trust and rely on God? Things turn very sober in verse 11 though. This is a sympathetic invitation that turns into a solemn warning. And this solemn warning is where the Messiah ends his song. You might think this is harsh or unloving, but it's the most loving thing he could do. He wants to make sure that people get the message of not relying on your own self-made religion. People think they're safe when they're really not. Look at verse 11. Behold, that means look up, listen up, see this, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Usually fire is something that is looked upon as positive it warms you it's illuminating it's clear you know it's a guide for for out of the darkness into the light so you think man i want to carry a torch for god and you could read it that way on first blush but this is a complete sarcastic indictment to say don't trust in making your own way All you who kindle a fire, if you're going to make your own religion or you're going to join a cult group and feel like you're pretend that you're safe because you can check box all of your religious duties off or be told that you're safe, be told that you're fine when you really aren't, saying, if you want to do that, then equip yourselves with burning torches. Light it up if you're going to reject me. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled. Go ahead, do that. But what's going to happen, Jesus says, This you have for my hand. In other words, you can take what I'm about to say to the bank. If you do that, you shall lie down in torment. Say, is that loving? Well, it's the most loving thing you can say to somebody who's walking off a cliff is to say, stop, you're going to die. You're going to go off into eternity. I woke up uh, a few days ago in a, not a cold sweat, but sort of shook awake. And I thought, man, and it was just a weird Um, Thought came to my mind, you know, just the, the sort of full force and weight of the difference between either being in heaven forever or being lost in hell forever came to mind. I thought, that is so dramatic. And I'm not someone who's ever given to doubt my salvation. I just, maybe it's my wiring or upbringing or theology or the Holy Spirit bearing witness in my heart that I'm a believer. I believe I'm a believer. That confidence is the most important thing I have in my life because eternity is coming. And knowing that I'm on Jesus' team, that I'm in his family, is the most important thing that I can know. That I'm not going down into torment. If you reject the Messiah, that's where you're headed. So in 2024, let me encourage you, slow down, listen to Jesus, find him in a text like this, commit to him, be his apprentice and follower all of your days.